What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome to the TriStar Takedown. I'm your host, Mitch Davis, with my co-host, Jake Nichols, bringing you all the sports talk in the state of Tennessee, from the WGC to the Memphis Tigers, all the way up to Rocky Top for the Tennessee Volunteers. Jake, what is up, my guy? What's up, man? How you doing? Been a Dude, minute. It's been a minute, man. I've uh, been doing the the TBT and now getting ready for the WGC Championship. So that's what's going on, crack a lacking in the 9-on-1. Well, over in this area, just uh, getting ready for some Tennessee football, man. Getting started with some uh, high school previews, a little 7-on-7 seven seven here and there, you know, just just getting ready for um, the fall and just, just for football season, man. I'm excited. I'm ready to get rock and rolling. Man, I'm ready for football season. Let's talk about Tennessee Vols and the Vanderbilt Commodores. SEC Media Days was this week, as long as, as well as with the AAC with Memphis Tigers. So we'll talk about all three of those there. And since you are a Tennessee guy, talk about what Jeremy Jeremy Pruitt did. He really didn't do a whole lot. He just kind of filibustered around for 20 minutes. Yeah, that's that's about what he did. And I think that it was um, very strategic on his part because he knew that he would be um, really ask some of those questions about Trey Smith and about Aubrey Solomon and D'Angelo Gibbs if he didn't fill up that time with something else. And what he did, um, he talked more about the GPA and how they had, you know, gotten a better GPA over the past um, year, past couple of semesters over at Tennessee. But I think that one thing that really stood out to me was how he was kind of thumping his chest about the GPA at the biggest football gathering um, for the SEC, and that was something also that Matt Hayes noticed as well. Um, I believe he, let's see, writes for Bleacher Report, if I'm correct. Yeah, um, I, I yes, think he yes, does write for Bleacher Report. National writer for Bleacher Report. He published an article um, a couple days ago now saying that uh, from what Pruitt said, he garnered that Tennessee would never be elite again. Like, not just under Jeremy Pruitt, but that Tennessee as a program would never be elite again just because Pruitt was up there talking about GPA. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's a little presumptuous to say that a program will never be elite again based on what one coach says at one gathering, of, um, at one media day gathering, but also um, just considering the facilities that Tennessee has had. I know Brian Rice from the Eric Ains show talked about this yesterday or the day before on his show, but with the facilities that Tennessee has with the the stadium, with the fan base, you know, um, you may be able to make a prediction that Tennessee won't be elite under Jeremy Pruitt, and that's fine. That's your opinion. But to say that they will never reach the pinnacle of football again ever, um, I think is much too presumptuous for the opinion of any one writer. What do you think? Well, and, and here's exactly what he said for the people that are going to be listening here. Once a proud SEC heavyweight, Tennessee will never be elite again. So that's kind of that's his exact quote. Here's how I take that right there. I don't think Tennessee, for as long as Kirby Smart or as Davo Sweeney or Nick Saban is at Alabama because Davo's going to go down to Tuscaloosa. I don't think either. I, I I don't think either Tennessee, Kentucky let's say South Carolina, any of those teams will ever compete with the University of Alabama or Georgia on a grander scale for the foreseeable future. I think the next 20 years, as long as 
Georgia's got Kirby Smart as long as Nick Saban's either got Dabo or Nick Saban. I just don't see that anybody can compete with those two. So I, in a way, I can see where Matt Hayes is coming from, but also in a way, I'm kind of like you know, hey, I wouldn't have put that out there, right? Like because that's, uh, I mean, consider, considering the fact that he does, you know, um, he is on the Florida beat quite a bit, and he also. Um, has a show, I believe, from what I've heard in Jacksonville every week. Uh, to me, that's just that's just trying to get clicks. That's just trying to get um, fans more in your region just to to jump on an article and to really get behind a false narrative. Yeah, and you know, a lot of fans within the Vol Nation are gonna, probably going to go crazy on him. If I'm Vol Nation, just don't even get the guy clicks. You know, just worry about your program, you know. But speaking right. of all football, I did want to ask you this because we talked about this kind of a little bit the other night. What's your opinions on selling alcohol at Neyland Stadium, and is it a good idea? Um, I think that it is a good idea as far as the uh, beer sales for students because it would allow them to maybe not have to binge drink quite as much right before the game because I know um, from just – being in that student section before from seeing kids just, uh, you know, chug alcohol right before they go in just to make sure they maintain that buzz throughout the entire game on a hot day for a noon kickoff that can quickly lead to, um, you know, a medical emergency if they're not careful. And so I do agree with it on that part. And as far as being able to streamlining more revenue into the university and into the football program, but as far as, um, fan behavior is concerned as far as uh, as far as people that may take that too far and knowing your fan base I don't think it's a good idea just because I think that you have to be able to limit that sale and that that it has to come with some ramifications that you have to be able to limit the amount per person if possible because that could quickly become dangerous and it could quickly lead to more fights in the stadium it could quickly lead to um, just more altercations and um, maybe making Neyland more of a dangerous place than what it's been before just because, you know, the average fan with the way Tennessee football has been going, of course they're going to want to drink during the game because what's there to watch on the field? Nothing. <laughs> so, I, uh, you know, coming you know. coming from a coming from an opposing fan here on the other side of the state, going into Neyland, it's always been kind of a, a hostile environment because, you know, like the fans across the SEC, they're very passionate about volunteer football and volunteer basketball. But when you take that realm location, you bring alcohol into that mix, selling it into the stadium, it takes it a whole to a whole nother level because of these guys are the the product on the field is so crap. They're like, oh well, I gotta you know blah blah blah. But you know, like you gotta you gotta do something to make it fun, and then that gets dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and I and I told you this the other day. Going to Kentucky games and going to Memphis games, Kentucky did have a tragic story last year with Marcus Shimwell. A little four-year-old boy was struck by a fraternity member leaving the football game. And because it was alcohol-related, I think the SEC kind of needs to be a little leery before we implement alcohol into all of our stadiums. But going off that, I told you that I was going to play devil's advocate here, and I am. So whenever... I read that article. I know exactly what you're talking about, but it had said from what I remember that he had admitted to drinking that morning, uh, you know, for probably to six hours before the incident took place. But 
if he's leaving the game and Kentucky didn't sell alcohol at the time, you know, um, what is like as sad as that accident is, what does it have to do with alcohol in the stadium? You know, I, I, I see that point, but you know, it's one of these things where no matter what you're going to allow, something's going to happen, you know? And so if you want to collect the money, collect the money, but also we have to have an alternative and say, Hey, if you're going to drink, we're going to offer $10 off an Uber or, you know, that's, have, a, that's a great idea. Actually, you know, I really like that. Like have like either that or have the SEC kind of pay with Uber a little bit and say, Hey, we'll do offer you a $15 ride, which you and I both know that can get you about anywhere in any city. And so you go to the football game, you tailgate, and let's say we just let you leave your cars overnight if you've been drinking. Instead of, yes. you know, implementing, oh, we'll tow you away, blah, blah, blah. Say, right. hey, if you're going to drink, that's okay, that's your prerogative. But you come in here, we'll offer you a $15 Uber ride to get you back to the Embassy Suites there in Kingston Pike or in Nicholasville or wherever you're staying. And that also will you know, kind of add into, hey, it's not going to cost me more money to get an Uber. It's not going to cost me a tow job to drink and to have my car there, you know. And so I think we have to work together a little bit and come up with a solution, you know, because if we are going to allow alcohol at stadiums, just kind of like Memphis does, Memphis kind of offers that, hey, I think it's like $10. You get a $10 Uber back to your dorm room, back to your house or whatever it is. And so the SEC kind of needs to do that with Uber or Lyft or the other various ride services say, hey look guys if you do partake have a dd or call an uber you can download the app here and you can have a free 15 dollar ride to go wherever you need to go in that city right and then i think encourage um you know each university for like for tennessee for jeff jarnigan the pa announcer to make sure that they have something that encourages fans to um to behave safely after consuming alcohol and you know to be sure and say like um, either, um, you know, I think they have it on the Jumbotron, some already, but be sure you have that, uh, the drinking and driving promos that discourage that for after, um, after games, just to try to make people a little bit more aware of what they would be doing and the danger that they would be putting others in if they, um, decided to do that after, you know, binge drinking all day during a game. And I also think we need to work with our local local and statewide police departments, whether that's the Tennessee Highway Patrol, the Kentucky Highway Patrol, whatever it is, work with the police departments that set up DUI checkpoints throughout in order to even get out of the, you know, the stadium or get out of the city, have DUI checkpoints set up. And that way, one or two people get busted. They come back and say, hey, there's a DUI checkpoint. Let's not drink and drive. And so you have to make an example out of the one or two idiots in order to avoid something for later in the later in the future. Right. And I think that uh, just as a as a precursor for anyone that may be listening to this, that, you know, oh, that would be too much to ask of a university or too much to ask of, you know, a state or city government to try to implement that um, to uh, to coincide with the alcohol sales at any football game. You should be aware of you know, the amount that any SEC football fan is willing to drink during any given game day, because frankly, it's a lot. And then also, um, you know, if you're willing to increase those, uh, the sales for alcohol and to give that to people and give them options as far as their ability to drink during a game day, 
then you also have to be willing to increase the other side of that and be aware of the safety ramifications there and be aware of the effect that it could have on other people and just try to make allowances for both of those. You know, and and, and here's the thing, last thing I'm going to say on this issue, but here, like, if you're going to say, hey, let's allow drinking, let's, why don't we put the money into the security officers' pockets and say, hey, we'll pay you an extra $100, $200 when they're already not making much off their salary just to set up right. a DUI checkpoint throughout the stadium and make sure people are not getting in their car. Because you know what? I'm a fan. You're a fan. I don't mind a police officer saying, hey, blow in this breathalyzer, and if you're drinking, I'm going to test all your party and find the designated driver. I, I, I have no problem right. with doing that because I would rather be overly safe than overly sorry. And, and I think that that's something that the SEC and Commissioner Sankey and all these schools, Phil Former, the athletic director, Mitch Barnhart, all these other schools across the SEC need to say, hey, you know, we're going to do that. We're going to put a little extra money into the police police department's pocket, the city's off pocket, and we're going to say, hey, blow into a breathalyzer. If you're driving, here's, you know, find the designated driver. And I think that's something, if you are going to open the door up for alcohol, I do think that the city government needs to have some kind of funding in their in their terms to have a little bit of safety for everybody involved. I think that uh, the, the funding part is definitely right. But I really, I'm not sure how the, how the part of um, breathalyzing every member of any given party would work because uh i don't know i I feel like that wouldn't um i feel like that part wouldn't go over very well Eh, but i mean like i said overly safe or on you know overly sorry which which one would you rather you know (laughs) yeah so i'm talking about like like just the reactions from people like uh like you know you might not be able to to do that for any given member of you know, the population that goes to a football game, like, um, you know, would there be enough officers on hand to be able to facilitate that? I yeah. don't really think so. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's something that's going to probably have a lot of sorry stories to come out with, but I think after the SEC kind of realizes a lot of things, I think it's something the SEC can be a beacon, kind of like they are with everything else in college athletics. I think the SEC can use this and say, hey, this is what we learned from this, and this is how you can implement this in the rest of the NCAA. So let's yeah. talk about let's talk a little Vandy football. Coach Derek Mason, baby. We uh this dude was fiery. I don't know if you watched Derek Mason at Media Days. Derek Mason was on fire at Media Days. He was talking about this being the best Vanderbilt team of all time and this being the strongest defense. What are what are some of your takeaways from Derek Mason? Um I think that he had a strong presence, like he usually. Um, I think that the the biggest thing is just the confidence that he has in his football team, because that's something that um, you know we saw with James Franklin when he was there, and it's something that we've seen with Derek Mason. But before that, I don't really think that we saw that aura of confidence a lot with Vanderbilt football. So I think that it's something that um, they certainly welcome back. Because Vanderbilt, you know, does have a right to be at least com- pretty confident right now, at least when talking about Tennessee, because, you know, three straight victories over the balls. So I do think that they have a reason to be confident right now because Vanderbilt is um, a program on the rise, maybe not quite to the level of other SEC teams, because let's be frank, they're probably not ever going to get to the full level of other SEC opponents. But um, that doesn't mean that they're not talented. 
you know, and they open up with the Georgia Bulldogs. If if Vanderbilt can somehow pull off the miraculous upset of the Georgia Bulldogs on August 31st, <laughs> that could be catastrophic to the way the SEC is ran, not only in the West, but also in the East. You know, after Georgia, let's say Georgia does lose to Vanderbilt, Kentucky wins their first two or three conference games. Let's say, you know, Georgia, not Georgia, Florida, uh, South Carolina, Mississippi State, and then you've got a team like Vanderbilt win their first two or three conference games. Tennessee win a conference game or two. One, two, and three could easily be a combination of Vanderbilt, Tennessee, Kentucky, South Carolina. If Vanderbilt can pull off the miraculous uh, upset of the Georgia Bulldogs open the season. That is a bold take, my friend. Are you putting that down right now? <sighs> Ask him in about three weeks. Ask me in about three weeks. I just, something tells me Vanderbilt always upsets somebody every year. I mean, they do. You can't say that they but don't. They do, but why would it not be, you know, um, look, looking through their schedule, why would it not be a Missouri or a South Carolina? Why, or heck, a Kentucky. I'm sorry, but, you know, I had to say it. But, I mean, coming out and beating Georgia in the very first game of the season, I, I don't see it. I mean, Georgia's... Georgia's Georgia right now. They've got Kirby Smart. They've got Jake Fromm. They've got a plethora of talented players on both sides of the football. And I really, really don't think that Vanderbilt matches up with that enough right now to be able to get it done. But as you and I both know, that first game of the year, everybody's sloppy. You know, and usually that first game of the year, I I can speak for West Tennessee, is usually raining. So you go into Nashville, It's let's just say it's kind of not the best conditions or whatever. Georgia's sloppy a little bit. They're kind of hungover after getting beat by Texas in the bowl game. They don't really know what to expect from Vanderbilt. I mean, it could happen. And, you know, I think that 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 first game for Vanderbilt is so crucial. If they can even just hang with Georgia, I mean, they go to Purdue, then they come back home to uh, play LSU, then Northern Illinois, at Ole Miss. I mean, if Vanderbilt can find a way how to just – pull the miraculous upset because it is college football. It is the first game of the year. Anything can happen. If Vanderbilt pulls off the upset, Vanderbilt might be sitting pretty other than that LSU game heading into their final stretch of the down in the season in October. That is a good point. And um, I will let you keep thinking dreamy thoughts until <laughs> that first game. But I'm telling you, man, whenever, uh, whenever Jake from throws a strike, the that first touchdown, being the dogs get rolling, I'm just gonna. I'm I mean, gonna say I told you so because I'm 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 too good a friend for that. But we have to we have to be nice to our Vanderbilt friends. So why don't one of us just roll with the doors, you know, and see what happens? I mean, they won the College World Series, so they got a lot of things going. Got Jerry Stackhouse in basketball, so why not Vanderbilt football? Why can't Vanderbilt football make a statement win? like that Georgia win, or I'm even looking down further into the schedule, what about Vanderbilt going into South Carolina and the Columbia and pulling off the upset there? See, I would I would be more inclined to believe that one, but even that one is going to be tough because a lot of people are sleeping on the Gamecocks this year, but Jake Bentley, I think, is primed to have a breakout season. Well, see, before they play Vanderbilt, they've got to cut a little bit of a tough schedule. This is when South Carolina, this is their brunt of their schedule right here. They start playing Kentucky on September 28th. The following week is at Georgia. Then you welcome the Florida Gators at home. 
at Tennessee, and then you've got Vanderbilt that first weekend in November just kind of just sitting there on the schedule. That is a tough schedule, and I will say that I the, that that is one of the reasons that I'm more inclined that Vanderbilt could pull off the upset there just because the Gamecocks have to go through such a gauntlet before uh, facing Vanderbilt. The over-under is set on six and a half wins for the Vanderbilt Commodores out of Las Vegas. Where do you see that win total at the end of the year? I'm going to say six. You're going to say six? I like uh, – give me seven. I think – this is the year that Vanderbilt beats Tennessee for a fourth straight time because I do think Vanderbilt and Memphis are the two best teams in the state. I, and like I said, it all comes down to that Georgia game. If Vanderbilt can find a way to win, get a turnover, four or five turnovers, whatever, Vanderbilt's going to win seven games. See, I don't think it comes down to the Georgia game. I think that for Vanderbilt this year, I'm going to say that it comes down to – the either the Missouri game or the Kentucky game because I think that they will have a good chance against Tennessee again. Obviously, um, ETSU is going to go well for them, but I'm going to say that it comes down to either Missouri or Kentucky. When you look at their schedule, Missouri what is... still has the bowl ban. That's so, true. Still, and that, that's not going to last long. I'm telling you right now, and it's at Vanderbilt. Yeah. But looking, but looking at the Vanderbilt schedule, what would you say was probably that just that key chunk of their schedule? I would say when they travel to Oxford, they've got UNLV coming to Nashville, Missouri coming to Nashville, at South Carolina, and then at Florida. I think that that about four weeks span will make or break Vanderbilt season. I would agree with that. Because when you go down into November, you've got Kentucky at home, you've got East Tennessee State at home. And you go to Knoxville, but we both know Tennessee's not going to be as great as they're hoping to be this year because they're still lacking a lot of pieces. They've got Juwan Jennings back. they got Guantanamo back. But they still don't have a lot of pieces on defense. And so Vanderbilt could go into Knoxville again and get another win over the Volunteers. Just so we're clear, though, did you say Garantano or did you say Guantanamo? Garantano, is that his name? Always miss. I'm I'm not trying to put, like – misplace it on act on purpose here I'm <laughs> the sky but it, it's very it's very hard to say because it looks like guantanamo bay but it's something else so that's a that's yeah. a very very if, tricky one if tennessee loses to vanderbilt again i'm afraid that we might see jeremy pruitt in guantanamo bay you, okay here's the question about that if tennessee does in fact lose to vanderbilt again will jeremy will jeremy pruitt be on the hot seat I think that it'll get. I think that it'll be warm. I don't think it'll be hot. So you think he gets three years to prove himself, kind of? I think he'll get three years, and then, um, and then if by that fourth year, if we haven't seen some vast improvement, that that changes will need to be made. Maybe even after, um, after the first few games. But we're we're looking way down the road here. This is year two of the Pruitt era. So, I mean. Yeah, but as Tennessee and you got Memphis and Vanderbilt on the rise and MTSU on the rise, you kind of have to play catch up a little bit because Memphis, I mean, they're set up to, you know, have a New Year's Six Bowl game this season. But with the 5-7 and seven record that Tennessee had last year, you can say I'm wrong, but that was still a better 5-7 and seven than the last 5-7 and seven record under Butch Jones. I don't think that's without a doubt. I think any team that under Butch Jones was absolutely awful – even though they were life champions and champion, you know, what, what else were they champions of? Champions of the battle at Bristol, 
with the game against but, Virginia but, Tech. I mean, come on. But last year, Tennessee still had some quality wins, and you can't, you know. Yeah, they had they had Kentucky. What was the other quality wins that they had? They had Auburn Kentucky. was a huge one. Auburn, Auburn was, was a, a very win. big win. But see, that's the thing. Tennessee was so bipolar because they would show up for Auburn and they would show up for Kentucky, but then they would absolutely but get their the brain. Game, yeah, yeah, they would get their brains beat in by Florida. They'd get their brains beat in by you know who else? I mean, they lost to Vanderbilt pretty handily. I, I forgot looking at that score. I was looking up at the score going. Lord, Vanderbilt's up big. They were up by like 20-something points. I don't know if they closed the gap, but, I mean, you know, you kind of have to look at that kind of stuff and go, what Tennessee team is going to show it up? And I think that's been the storyline of Tennessee for the last, I'd say, five seasons, five or six seasons. That's a very good point. You know, and, and when you look at the overall of the SEC, going back to Matt Hayes' thing here, Matt Hayes' comment, when you go ahead to the whole SEC as a whole – Tennessee, history-wise, is still behind Alabama, Georgia, Florida. I mean, you would almost have to put them at four or five on the history and the tradition depth chart there. After who again? I would say Alabama, number one. Of course, they're number one. Georgia, number two. Florida, number three. And then it would be a toss-up between the Auburn Tigers and the Tennessee Volunteers. Well, how okay? How do you put Georgia at number two? The the Bulldogs are talented lately, but their last national title came in 1980. And Tennessee's last national title came in 98. Before that, what was it? 30 years, 40 years. So I mean, it's kind but of still it's, Tennessee. Tennessee has six national titles. Georgia has one. Six actually, one or six claimed. Six one. So. I don't know. I, I, when you look at just overall, to me, looking in from the outside, looking in, I would have to put Georgia as the better program just because fan support, just because of coach stability rates, you know, more likely to succeed because they don't have to play Alabama every year. Georgia can go into the SEC championship without having to play Alabama a single time until they get to Atlanta. And, and so I think that that's where you have to kind of put Georgia above Tennessee because they, they have more of a – more of a chance to succeed without facing Alabama. So let's talk a little bit more about, uh, we got into it a little bit earlier, but we've talked about the balls, man. How about Kentucky? What do you think? I'm going to put Kentucky at, uh, we'll go eight wins. I, I think that that's pretty, I think they're going to take a step back losing Josh Allen and Benny Snell, but they've also returned cash channels. They returned Terry Wilson. I think Kentucky is probably one of these teams that's going to be, just a good team, you know, get to the Outback Bowl, get to the Music City Bowl, get to a good bowl game. And I think that they beat somebody along the lines. I think it might be a Florida, but I don't think they have any shot in heck against Georgia. Yeah. Wait, okay. Let me let me get this straight. So you don't think Kentucky has any shot in heck against Georgia, but you think Vanderbilt's going to come out and beat them in the first game of the season? Only difference is, is that Kentucky has to go to Athens. So when you, go, when you go to Athens and that home field advantage – I mean, that, that makes all the difference in the world. That's true. And because Derek Mason did come out and say at SEC Media Days, hey, our athletic director and our marketing crew has done a, a better job at keeping the tickets out of University of Georgia fans. And so right. I think that home field advantage for Vanderbilt is kind of the, the kind of the kicker a little bit because Kentucky does have to go to Athens. And when you go to Athens – 95,000 strong at Sanford Stadium. That's a hard place to play. 
especially after last year's game where so much was on the line. I think Georgia comes out and says, hey, we're going we're gonna to assert our dominance a little bit because I do think Kentucky will be nipping at people's heels in the SEC East all, all season long. I would agree with that. So let's talk about the Memphis Tigers before we get into the WGC. Uh, Memphis went down up to Rhode Island for the American Athletic uh, Media Days. Can't think of the word there. They went up there. They were picked to win the West. It's kind of going to be the same thing. It's going to look like it's going to be UCF and Memphis and the American Athletic. What are your thoughts on the Tigers coming from a Knoxville standpoint? And what do you think about UCF? Do you think it is the Tigers and the Knights, or do you think Cincinnati dethrones the UCF Knights? I'm going to stay Memphis and UCF again, because at this point, honestly, why sleep on UCF? Because uh, obviously they talk more than anyone else in the country, but they have also got at least a decent amount of talent to back it up. Here's the thing about UCF. That game against Cincinnati is October 4th at Cincinnati in Bearcat. I mean, it's at the Bearcat Stadium. That game right there is going to make or break either Cincinnati or UCF's season. If UCF can get a win at Cincinnati or Cincinnati can beat UCF, that sets up either team to host the American Athletic Championship if Memphis loses a game throughout their schedule. But Memphis actually got a pretty favorable schedule. They they only have like four or five home games, but the road games are very manageable for the Tigers. They have to go to South Alabama, which I think is going to be a very good football team next season. I know that they were picked second or third in the Sunbelt Conference, but looking at the football schedule for Memphis, they open up with a depleted Ole Miss team against a Power 5 team. The Tigers get a break there. They return home to face Southern University before traveling to Mobile to face South Alabama. Then the Tigers are back home to face Navy. When I'm looking at the Tigers' schedule here, I see an easy 10 wins. I see Ole Miss is a win, Southern University is a win, South Alabama is a win, Navy, Louisiana, Monroe, Temple probably is going to be a win, Tulane's probably going to be a win, Tulsa, SMU. I think the toughest two I, t- I think the toughest four-game stress for Memphis is in the month of November when they have SMU at Houston, at USF, and they come back home to face the Cincinnati Bearcats. Man, you talked about Houston a little bit. Before we get going on another topic, um, just going into more detail on a couple teams from the TriStar State, what do you think about Dana Holgerson right now? I think that that guy... I think it was a dumb move to leave West Virginia and go to Houston because Houston is kind of in the backseat right now to Memphis, UCF, and Cincinnati. But with that being said, Dana needs to get a haircut. He has yet to get a haircut from Morgantown. <laughs> he kind of grew a mullet. I, I was watching the AAC media days, and I was like, good Lord, Dana, get a hold of your hair. But I think Houston's going to be one of these teams that has a really high-powered offense, but I don't think that they're going to be able to stop anybody on defense, especially after losing Ed Oliver and a couple other key guys on defense. I think a team like Memphis or Cincinnati, UCF, USF, I think that these teams will put up big numbers on our Houston defense. So we've talked a little Memphis football. We've talked a little Tennessee football. We've even talked a little bit Vanderbilt. So let's move back over to the 901 now and talk a little golf with that WGC <laughs> championship coming this week. Man, got some great talent coming to the 901, but – obviously, with one marquee name missing. Yeah, you know, first off, before we get into the segment, I will be there on in person from Monday through Sunday 
of this coming up week covering the golf tournament. I know you're coming on Saturday. We're actually planning on doing a live podcast thing from the hub there. We're going to try to get with the PGA people and get us a place set up there on Saturday to record a podcast live. So if you're going to be listening, you're going to be in that area, stop on by. We'll tweet out what time and all that good stuff. We'll be there. We're going to be uh, talking about this golf tournament. Well, Tiger Woods, though, I'm disappointed in Tiger Woods. Are you? Yeah, I think I am. But more than anything, I I didn't completely expect him to come this year. I know I know a lot of people did, but judging by the fact that he hasn't ever come to Memphis, I don't think that I was really holding out hope a whole lot. Well, I was I was hoping that he would, but I wasn't really expecting him to show up. But I do think that it was a move. I think I saw on Twitter um, yesterday it was something that I sent to you that that someone said that it didn't really seem to fit his brand to to come to the. Uh, St. Jude tournament in Memphis and I think I would agree with that that you know um, it's probably because it's a smaller tournament that maybe it doesn't it doesn't fit with what he seeks to put out about um, the Tiger Woods brand and about what uh, what that is about just the the success that he's had so I think that it was a bad move on his part but I'm still very very excited about the field that is going to be there. Let's talk about the field a little bit. Brooks Koepka's coming. Keegan Bradley's coming. Paul Casey's coming. Jason Day. Phil Mickelson. Tom, Tommy Fleetwood. Jim Furyk. Sergio Garcia. J.B. Holmes. Billy Horschel. And that's only to name a few. Like, this is the top 60 golfers with the, well, 57 out of the 60 golfers and I think 64 golfers total. Let's talk about that. Who do you see winning this tournament heading into next week? Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to go with just with, uh, Justin Thomas. You like Justin Thomas. I think his game will fit well in here in Memphis. I like Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka, okay. when, once you get on the back nine there and Brooks, as far as he can drive it, I love Brooks Kepka's game here in Memphis. I, I think TPC South, when I haven't been out there yet, they redid the course, but when you get down to 14, 15, 16, that 14 is a par three, you get down to 15. That's like a, I think that's like a 500 yard tee shot or I mean not tee shot but you know hole there and then you go all the way over to 17 that's a little short par four I think once you get over into the backside of the course I think you're going to really see a lot of these golfers be challenged and Brooks Kepka seems to have the most mental game a little bit he has a he's kind of had the capacity to, to handle the TPC Southwind course but I also love Bubba Watson because Bubba Watson can drive it a country mile too that's very true yeah, I um I remember even just whenever he uh whenever he won the Masters a few years ago, just being able to watch on TV and just see the power that he had behind his swing. You know, and, and here's the thing, and I want to ask you this question before I you know before I answer this. Who would your surprise pick be when you're looking at the list down the list here? Who would your surprise pick to be to win that World Golf Championship St. Jude Invitational? Um, I'm gonna go. Let's see. Looking through here. I don't know. I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a gut feeling here. Not necessarily who uh, picked to win, but maybe um, kind of a dark horse. I'm gonna go Phil Mickel- Phil Mickelson. I love that pick. I, I absolutely love that pick. I think Phil's game. He I mean, he's won here in Memphis twice, and so he comes to this tournament every year. He always makes the cut. He's always within the top five here in Memphis. So I do like that pick. My pick is the kind of the dark horse a little bit to kind of. Sneak up on everyone, everybody is Brent Snedeker from Vanderbilt. I love Snedeker. Okay. I love Snedeker. I love his putting. 
the greens at TPC Southwind kind of favor a little bit of Brent Snedeker's game. So I'd like Brent Snedeker to be within a top 10, if not have an opportunity to win on Searsucker Sunday next week. I like that. I, I, I really like, I'm telling you, I really like Brent Snedeker. But we're wrapping up here soon. We, uh, we've had a pretty busy show. You've had a guest yeah, but- on, so let's tell everybody about your guest real quick. Yeah, um, I was able to talk to Coach Steve Matthews, a head coach over at Knoxville Catholic here um, in the East Tennessee area. He's been able to produce two state championships for the Fighting Irish, probably well on the way to a, well on the way to a third this season. They've got a stellar team coming back. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show, whenever we were getting started, that there's a lot of great high school football going here, going on here in the area. You can be sure and keep up with all that at your high school sports. It's yhss.magazine on Twitter and yhssmagazine on Instagram as well. We'll be sure to have all your high school football coverage from now until all the state championship games in Cookville in December. But I really do think that uh, Catholic's got a good program going. Um, They've got a couple big transfers now um, to start this season. Tyler Barron is a big one from the Innsworth School in Nashville. Um, he's really looking to make an impact over there for the Fighting Irish. And then Chancellor Bright, another one that they've got coming in. But, man, if you look at, at Catholic, they've been made up of a lot of new faces here for a while, trying to establish the culture over there. He's been there for uh, – Coach Matthews has been there for five, for uh, seven seasons now. Um, like I said, two state championships, um, several just very successful seasons – um, you know, a lot of big talent coming out too. Amari Rogers for Clemson played there. Um, and then you've got your Cade Mays from, from Georgia that played a Catholic and just a lot of talent over there. And he's really been able to establish a successful program, but not only that, he also played for the university of Memphis for a little bit whenever he played in college. And then he played in the NFL with some pretty big names, Joe Montana being one of them. So we got into a little bit about Catholic football, um, a little bit about his NFL career, and then just about his impact in football as a whole. So I think it was a pretty good conversation. And uh, Knox Catholic has always been one of these teams that win state championships at a regular level, and they usually compete with Briar Chris here in Memphis and ECS and a couple other private schools. So it's a it's a big deal to have Knox Catholic's coach on the podcast. Jake, got any closing remarks, my guy? Um, I think I'm good. Just be sure and give a listen to the Coach Matthews interview because I think it is a good one. Um, be sure and watch out for them this year because they are definitely a favorite here in East Tennessee to get a third gold ball. And be sure and keep up with your high school sports, the, the magazine, and just follow me on Twitter if you'd like to know more about that at Nichols underscore 2121. We've got a lot of good content coming over there and here on the TriStar Takedown. Yeah, you can uh, find Jake on Twitter there. You can find me on Twitter, Mitch Davis underscore eight. This has been the TriStar Takedown. Enjoy the interview with the coach from Knox Catholic. Welcome to this week's take of the TriStar Takedown with Mitch Davis and Jake Nichols. I'm Jake Nichols here with our guest for today, Knoxville Catholic head coach Steve Matthews. Coach, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Coach, just got a first few questions lined up for you here. So, firstly, obviously you've established um, quite 
uh, quite a record over at Knox Catholic so far. Looking at your schedule for this year, you have several teams from Nashville on the slate. Can you talk about the talent present in that part of the state and just kind of what challenge those guys present to you each each week um, being able to play them? Yeah, it'll, it'll be tough this year. This is our first year in the, uh, in the, in the Division Two in the uh, in kind of big league, so to speak. We're looking forward to it. We're, you know, as competitors, you, you want to compete against the best, and, and we feel like we're playing against the best teams. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to build a program here that – that, you know, compete with those guys year in and year out. And, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're looking forward to it. We know it's going to be a challenge, but it's only going to make our program better. So moving a little further across the state, I know you spent some time at Memphis back in your college days. How would you compare the talent in Memphis schools to those in Knoxville or in Middle Tennessee? You know, I'd say it's probably cyclical. Um, you know, I, I know the East Tennessee teams – uh, it has seen by and large led by Maryville have, have won the state championships with uh, Maryville and Alcoa. Right. But, um, but, but, you know, when you, when you talk about talent, as far as producing college talent, then, then Memphis is, is probably leading the way in that. So it, it, it's probably a good mix. Um, you know, you, you, Brentwood Academy, I think won several state championships in a row in Middle Tennessee and, and Oakland, Oakland down in Murfreesboro is really coming on strong. So I think it's a pretty good mix throughout the state of, uh, of you know, a lot of, lot of good players kind of spread out. So going off that, um, looking back at the schedules that you've had through your years at Knox Catholic, you guys have never really played any Memphis teams. Is it hard to get those guys on the schedule or does it just not work out um, geographically or can you talk about Kind of that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, ge- ge- geographically, it's, it's just too far. Um, Nashville really is about as far as we want to go. Um, and we, we did have to play up in Kentucky a couple years ago, about mm-hmm. about three and a half hours away. That was just brutal. Ended up, ended up being just, <laughs> you know, when you got when you got 70, 16 and 17 year olds on the bus for that long, it's, it's just not conducive and, and not what we want to do. Now, when we get the playoffs, there is a chance that we'll have to play some Memphis teams, and so we'll just have to, uh, you know, buck up and get it done, and, and, and it is what it is. Uh, we're kind of all, all these D2 teams are kind of spread out throughout the state, and uh, that, that's kind of unfortunate right now. But uh, it, it's just the way it is, so we're ready for that when, when that time comes. Being in D2, who do you really keep your eye on in that part of the state, just in Memphis and then um... – also, just in Nashville, if you guys play in the regular season, I think Brentwood Academy right now is probably the team that stands out. Um, I know they've won a couple state championships in a row, and I and I'm not real familiar uh, with them. We we had we did play them last year, um, but um, yeah, probably those guys are kind of the standard bearer right now. Just I know they they won a couple state championships in a row and have, have done a really great job uh, with their program. Speaking of state championships, I know you guys have um, you have two under your belt now at Catholic and possibly getting ready for another one this year. Can you talk about just what it was like coming in in 2012 and taking the program at Catholic from really almost mediocrity to success and just the way you've been able to establish the program there? You know, we, there's, we, there's a couple on our staff that have, that have been here the entire seven years, and sometimes we're we're just pinching our shells. Uh, when you look to, to where we came from to where we are now, and, and more than anything, I, I think it's just word of mouth that uh, 
you know, we, we probably won a few games my first year that, that we shouldn't have. Uh, you know, we got lucky. We played great special teams and great defense and, and won two games in the playoffs in overtime. So that propelled us into the semifinals my first year, which kind of kind of gave us some momentum uh, moving forward, which then, you know, the Amari Rogers, um, you know, showed up on campus. And I had known T. Martin's father for 20 years. So, so that was a pretty, pretty easy get right there. And then um, with Cade and Cooper Mays uh, coming over, and I also knew their father from, from my days in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So really got lucky just that they happened to have those kids right there. They, those guys, along with some others, kind of spearheaded our program going forward. And just, uh, and mo- you know, most of your really good players want to play with other good players. And uh, so it just got the ball rolling, and we've been able to be pretty, able to be pretty successful. So you mentioned two other names that have been there with you all seven years. Uh, can you mention those guys and just who their um, coaching yeah, positions? Co- yeah, Justin Anderson has been our line coach since I got here. Sam Brown has been coaching running back since I got here, and Drew uh, Franks has been coaching receivers. And you know, if you look at our team now compared to those those early days, you know, it's it's a lot different. But but those early those guys, my early years, they battled. They bought into the culture. And more than anything, they really got the ball rolling um, there early in this program. Can you talk about just the words that you would use to describe the culture that you've been able to establish? Well, we, we, we try to have fun, and unfortunately, uh, I'm not a coach. I've kind of gotten I've gotten away from that. But we want to be we want to have a good time and, and be committed to each other and try to create a family atmosphere Uh, at times that is difficult especially in fall camp when you know it's just a grind out there and it's hot and things like that so uh, we have good days and bad days but uh i I think the players know that you know the coaches care about them and and, and we try to have fun and 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 we try to help them moving forward you know it's not just about winning games here in Knoxville catholic but it's also you know, if, if at all possible, going on to the next level, and I think we do a good job as a staff of that, and also, you know, make make it, try to make it as much as we can an enjoyable experience for everybody. So, with being an enjoyable experience playing high school football, how do you break up some of those monotonous days in practice? Like, what kind of activities do you have lined up just for team building stuff or any other? Well, we we change it up year to year. We've done the wilderness, which has probably been the best thing that we've done. Uh, you know, got on the bus when they thought they were going to be practicing and went to the wilderness. Um, we'll go to the pool. We have we have we have barbecues and uh, you know we have pool days and I think we got a um, we're working on a paint paintball day uh, here coming up. So we try to do things like that and uh, you know even even have try to try to run a structured practice with attempt up tempo and we're out you know we're out here about two hours and we're done so we don't we don't try to keep them forever. And a lot of times that's just coaches being structured and organized. So, so guys can get their work done and then go. Just kind of um, off of that, would um, do you know where y'all will be doing the paintball thing? If I wanted to include that, like in an article or something. Uh, I don't know where. I know it's on a farm, and I know it's next Wednesday. I got gotcha. you. But I don't. I don't have the exact uh, where it's going to be yet. Okay. Well, um, just going off what we talked about before that, um, obviously you've developed quite a culture there, like you said, but can you talk about the feeling of like whenever you have players transfer in for this year, um, for example, like your Tyler Barons, your Chancellor Brights, just 
um, your pitch to bring other guys into that program and whenever they want to be a part of what you've created? Yeah, like like I said, uh, a little bit of it's luck, and a, and a lot of it's just word of mouth. Uh, it seems like times have changed in high school football. All these players know each other. They go to these camps and play, and play on all-star teams from probably the sixth grade on. And it was social media, it's so much easier to contact one another. And, uh, you know, they develop relationships, and, and I think more than anything, it's a word of mouth of, hey, this, this is a good place to come play, and... Uh, you know, this is this is a good place. We're gonna we're gonna do everything we can to to make you a better player and a person, but also help you move on to the next level. And, and that's created a lot of a lot of buzz. And so we've been able to get a few transfers in. What do you think? If you can take me into the mindset and reasoning of a player, um, just behind like their main reasons for wanting to come be a part of that program. Do you think it's more? Um, wanting to get a better shot at the next level or just to be a part of something special that you guys seem to have created? I think a little bit of both. I think, um, you know, we've, we've had several over the years. I, I, I definitely think it's a little bit of both, of um, just kind of seeing our program and, and and seeing the things we've been able to accomplish. And some of them are like, hey, you know, if, if, I, if I go here, more colleges are going to notice me and things like that. If I can, if I can go to Knoxville Catholic and do well, and I think – yeah, I think we've proven that. We've had we had about sixty different colleges at our spring practice, so so they believe in what we're doing and they and they like to come out. So I think that's that's probably a big part of it more than anything. How has your time at Catholic built your relationships with those college coaches, just in recruiting, but also just friendships that you've been able to develop? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm shocked at how you know they only come by about I think it's three times a year. But you do, you just kind of, you're shocked at how many, you know, so with my background in playing college and playing in the pros, it's, hey, I, I might not know you personally, but I know somebody you know, or, you know, football really is a small fraternity when, when you break it all down, so it's kind of a lot of the same guys, and so, uh, and so it's good, yeah, you know, I think, I think they trust me, and, and I try to, try to be honest with them, and, you know, I, I do push our players a lot, but I, but I think I've built a trust of, hey, if, you know, if I say this guy can help you, they, I think typically they believe me. Sometimes they disagree. We've had cases where, you know, I've really, really tried to push push a young man, and they're and they're maybe like, ah, he's not he's not tall enough, or or whatever. Uh, so that does happen from time to time. So you said that some coaches say that you know some player isn't tall enough or maybe not fast enough. But whenever you talked about Jeremy Pruitt evaluating Cooper, you know, he said that. Uh, size difference or not that they wanted him in their program what do you foresee for him at UT and just kind of the the success that you think that you think that Pruitt can have after getting to know him a little bit I think Cooper's going to do great um and, and what's funny if you'd asked me that a year ago I, I might have been you know I'm not sure but just watching how he's been in camp uh, this fall he's really mature and really filled out in his body he's he's one of these late bloomers I mean, his athleticism is absolutely shocking me. Just watching him, you know, what we've been doing the last couple of days, and just, and just watching how he's able to move. And so, uh, I really think sky's the limit. Where if you'd asked me a year ago, it might have been, hey, let's, you know, let's wait and see. But um, I think he's going to have an outstanding year at Catholic and a, and a great career at the University of Tennessee. And I think it's exactly what Coach Pruitt is looking for when he's building his program. How do you foresee? coach Pruitt doing overall or can you give like any kind of recommendation for just how you've gotten to know him as a person and um 
the success you think he'll have? You know, all the things I hear are positive. Um, we, we had a long conversation in January, mostly about Cooper. Um, but, but everything I'm hearing is positive um, with recruiting. And I, I do like, it feels like he's not, he's kind of really wants to see players before before he offers and things like that, which I think is a positive. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's too early to tell, to be honest. I think this year's a big year for him. It always is in the second year. But I, I wish him the best, especially now that we're going to have guys uh, over there playing for him. So going off that, this wasn't really listed as part of my questions, but what do you think is the biggest difference for coaches whenever they offer a player without actually coming to watch him in person and just kind of going off word of mouth? You know, I think I think you got to ask yourself: Are those offers real? Um, you know, sometimes a, a coach will offer a player just because you know everybody else has, or maybe they've heard and they want to make sure they're in. Uh, you know, some of them watch watch five minutes of film and feel like, hey, I can I can go ahead and offer them. But I, I think the more successful coaches watch games, come to practice, come to games, and and really get to know the young man what he's made of before they offer or maybe, you know, require them to come to camp, which uh, I know Coach Pruitt did when he first got here. Um, you know, he, he required those guys. He wanted to see them in person and see how they responded and, and see see what their work ethic was, which I think is uh, I think it's a good idea at that level. Right. So moving on from UT, there are obviously several other teams in the state, Vandy, Memphis, MTSU. Can you, since this is kind of a show based on um, the regional take on football. Can you kind of give your opinion on how you think they'll do and just the, your relationship with their coaches as well, with Coach Mason, with uh, Norvell, and then with Stocksville as well? Yeah, well, Coach, um, I actually coached Brent Stocksville um, in high school, and uh, so I'm all, I'm always pulling for those guys. And uh, Coach, Coach, Coach Rick Stocksville, I, I consider a friend, and, and coached his son for, for, uh, for three years there in Siegel and Murfreesboro. So, you know, I think they'll do well. We have one of our quarterbacks is there, Chase Cunningham. He's battling for the starting spot, so I'm rooting for him. Uh, Memphis, I, I, I went to Tennessee and transferred to Memphis, so I'm always kind of keeping an eye on them. And they've really done a great job, Coach Norvell and that program. And uh, I saw somewhere someone even had them possibly going into the Cotton Bowl, so I think they're going to have a great season. And, and so, uh, you know, I root, I root for all the local teams. My brother played for Vanderbilt in the – can you go back just for a second i had no idea the connection with uh with coach stock still what was that like being able to um you said you played under him no i coached, coached under him brent. okay yeah. you coached brent okay um what's it been like to just see their relationship while he's in mtsu i know that um that that's kind of made a lot of buzz around that area no, it was great. I, uh, you know, he was he was he was a really really good quarterback at, at Seagull, and I had him for three years. Love football, really caught on to things. Uh, but he was he was about five eleven. Yeah, he committed to Cincinnati and set to go to Cincinnati, and then um, you know his dad decided, hey, I would like I would like to coach you, and uh, so he ended up going to middle and setting all kinds of records. I was a little disappointed he didn't get a shot in the NFL. I know he had some tryouts, but, but just with, uh, you know, with his size, nobody was able to really want to pull the trigger. So he's going to get into college coaching, and I think he'll be an outstanding coach. 
what did you hear from Rick as far as just being able to have that father-son relationship extend into the college level for them? Did you ever talk about that at all? Yeah, you know, I I, um, I, I know it was something he was very apprehensive about, and that's one of the reasons Rick committed to, to Cincinnati, because I don't think Rick was really into coaching. But I think once he got there, it, it really was a lot easier than what, than what Rick thought it was going to be. Um, you know, coach, coaching your son is always difficult, but and I think um, I think really probably because of maturity of Rick and his competitive nature, they were able to make it work. But and obviously it did. They you know they put up huge numbers and they, they had a great offense over the years. So I didn't talk a ton to him about it, but I know it went a lot smoother than what they expected. So just one last thing for you here. Um, looking at the Catholic website, I know you've played with. Um, several impressive players throughout your career, Joe Montana, Marcus Allen, Eddie George, Steve McNair, just a few of those names. But what would you say are some of your most memorable moments of your career in football and just kind of names that you've either been starstruck by or just been able to become friends with, like you said, with being that just giant fraternity? You know, Joe, Joe Montana pop, pops to mind. Uh, I, got drafted, I got drafted by the Chiefs out of Memphis and uh, – that was the first thing I thought was, man, Joe Montana was on the team. He was 39. I was 22. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he was kind of a kid at heart. So it was his last year, my first year. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't say we developed a friendship. But really, really did have some good moments with him. He's, you know, he's just like you see. He's just a regular Joe. And, and so really enjoyed my time with him. Rich Gannon uh, ended up going to the Raiders. was on that team as well. And he and I are still fairly close. And, uh Probably my best moment in the NFL was when I played for the Jaguars and started, I think it was the second game of the season, and did really well, and so really enjoyed that. But played with some great players, great coaches. Um, my head coaches were Marty Schottenheimer and Tom Coughlin and Jeff Fisher. Uh, had some great assistant, Mike McCarthy, who's with the Packers, was one of my assistant coaches. So really, really been lucky in my career with the players and coaches that I've been around, and, and hopefully – I was able to pick up some of that and pass it on to these guys that, I, that I'm coaching now. And so moving on, just to close up, what are you looking forward to most about this season and just um, being able to get going with another season of Catholic football? You know, you're as a coach, you're always, hey, or, you know, how are we going to do with this? You always kind of worry about special teams and, and some of the things that maybe the average fan doesn't think a ton about. So it's always kind of nerve-wracking. You know, hey, are we ready? Have we done enough? Are we doing enough to, to get ready for the season? At the same time, you don't want to burn them out. So uh, I'm excited about it, about all of it. I really like this team. It's a good group of guys, high-character guys. But at the same time, at this time of year, you just want to make sure you're doing everything possible to give your team the best opportunity to be successful, which is you know kind of nerve-wracking because it is a balancing act, especially at the high school level. Well, um, I think that'll about do it, but um, Coach, I really, really appreciate the time, and thank you for coming on, and good luck to you guys this season. I really look forward to keeping up with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for supporting us. If you ever need anything, feel free to reach out. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Thank you.